Before we get into it, we'd like to preface that this episode contains details of assault and police violence. Listener's discretion advised. I'm Sylvia Pong. I'm John Ray Serapia. You're listening to At The Moment by AZ Media. What you're hearing are chants from a recent protest at Folly Square, a plaza in Manhattan's Chinatown neighborhood. It's actually a popular spot for protests and rallies. In 2014, thousands gathered here to protest the murder of Eric Gardner. And two years later, dozens of protesters were arrested here in solidarity with Standing Rock. And in 2017, enraged protesters took Folly Square during Trump's inauguration. Fast forward to February 27, 2021, where the Asian American Federation held an event called Rally to Rise Up Against Asian American Hate in response to an intense increase in anti-Asian violence and hate incidents across the nation. And John Ray and I were actually there. It was a rainy morning and the rally was supposed to start at 1. And around 12.30, there was maybe about like 20 people standing around with some media people in the back and a stage. And we weren't sure if there was going to be a big showing. But then within the next 20 minutes, the whole square was filled up. Right. And I think like over 300 people showed up at Folly Square. Everybody kind of showed up with these really cool signs. Some that I saw said like, stop the hate, white supremacy is violence. And um, did you see any others though? I remember seeing within the crowd a poster with a drawing of an Asian grandma in a Bruce Lee pose. And that really made me (laughs) chuckle. Interesting. I don't think I saw that one. But this rally happened in due time because if you look at the stats, it's actually really alarming. In New York City alone, there has been an 833% increase in anti-Asian hate incidents this year, according to the California State University Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism. 833%. I, I can't even. To break it down further, in 2019, only three anti-Asian hate incidents were reported compared to the 28 reported incidents in all of 2020. It's important to note that these numbers don't even account for the amount of incidents that go unreported. Because we all kind of know how ineffective reporting incidents to the state and local counties can be. Stop AAPI Hate, an organization created at the beginning of the pandemic, actually stepped in to serve as an alternative space to report hate incidents. Between March 31st and December 31st, 2020, Stop AAPI Hate received 2,808 incidents of anti-Asian discrimination. Hmm. Granted that these reports are not just from New York. They come from 47 states and D.C., showing us that this is actually happening everywhere. In the U.S., a new report found more than 2,800 incidents of anti-Asian hate from March to December. The coronavirus pandemic has been hard on a lot of people in America. But 
there's one community that has faced a unique crisis. He made some sexual gesture and some racial comments about me being Asian. And which that was when he looked um, toward me and he spat on the side of my face. Asian piece of Oh my God. Surveillance cameras capturing the moment her 84-year-old dad was attacked and violently knocked to the ground on a morning walk. Vichar died two days later. All right, this is horrifying and sad to watch. And to kind of zone in a bit, on February 25th, two days prior to the rally, a 36-year-old Chinese man was brutally stabbed in the back, which left him in critical condition. And this incident happened just around the block from Folly Square, where the rally was happening. And we wanted to talk to the folks we saw there and find out why they decided to come. At the beginning of the event, we talked to a volunteer marshal. I go by Nick, he, him. And I'm here today because I just want to, you know, engage my community in a positive way, of course. But also to show that I don't want to stand for this anymore, and nor should vulnerable members of our community, such as our elders, be subject to this, especially because they did nothing wrong. So that's why I'm here. Speaking today. of elders, at the rally, we actually saw Noel Quintana give a speech. He's a 61-year-old man originally from the Philippines, and in early February, Mr. Quintana was sadly slashed from ear to ear with a box cutter on the subway. He was on his way to the first of his two jobs. And it was really difficult to listen to Noah speak because you can just hear his voice trembling as he relived what he went through only a few weeks ago. And I called for help, but nobody came for help. I never knew that nobody would help me in this kind of instance. There should be an awareness of people, ordinary people, especially riding the subway, on how to respond and help a victim like me. Yeah, and I honestly could barely get through his speech without tearing up. New York City is a place that's touted for its diversity and acceptance, yet we're seeing this influx of anti-Asian violence. As Noel's speech continued, you could kind of feel the lull in the crowd's energy as people wondered, what if this happened to my elders? This is a really serious question that I feel like a lot of us have been grappling with since the very beginning of this pandemic. A lot of media outlets that were present at the rally are just now writing hard-hitting think pieces about anti-Asian violence, but a lot of us have been thinking about the safety of our elders for so long. It's like you mentioned, it's really just recently that we're seeing this unprecedented engagement from media and politicians on this issue. I feel quite conflicted on this because increased coverage is a good start regarding Asian Americans who are often overlooked in discussion of racial bias. But what's next isn't clear at all. It's unclear what these people in power want to do for the community. Yeah, exactly. And there were a number of politicians who were present at the rally, including New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. De Blasio has just recently gotten super vocal about anti-Asian hate incidents after downplaying a rise in violence in general in New York City since the beginning of the pandemic up until like literally a week ago. So this might honestly be all part of his PR stunt to start acknowledging anti-Asian hate or just violence in general in New York City. So his appearance wasn't too much of a surprise. And even current New York City mayoral candidate Andrew Yang stopped by in the middle of the rally for a few photo ops and interviews and then proceeded to Irish goodbye the crowd before the event ended. I mean... Congresswoman Grace Meng spoke, which I was really excited about. We've been taught our entire life to just fit in, just be quiet, don't speak up, 
be invisible. If you are invisible enough, you will be seen as American. But we are here to say that we will be invisible no more. We must speak up. We thank everyone for speaking up and standing with us. And we say that we are American too. We need to make sure that we are not fighting racism with more racism, that we are fighting racism with solidarity, that we are not ever, ever pitting one group against the other. And we also heard from community organizer Murad Awade. We cannot police our way out of this. by supporting the organizations already working in these communities, providing language-appropriate mental health services, providing resources for community-led... People appreciated some of the other BIPOC assembly members who showed up and urged solidarity and community building. But still, it felt like the majority of politicians said things that at first might seem kind of comforting, but when examining it further was basically just classic political fluff. Show us the consequences of those criminals. We need not a volunteer patrol. We need a patrol which is staffed by police officers and individuals who are committed to address... You could tell that at some points, there was a pretty clear disconnect between the politicians who pushed their way to the podium and the crowd of organizers who kind of didn't want to hear from them in the first place. When the event ended, we talked to some attendees and we wanted to know how they were feeling and what they thought of the proposed solutions. My name is Becca Asaki, A-S-A-K-I. We were we were out here, you know, last year um, trying to fight against this exact issue, but we need investment in API organizations, we need investment in community organizations, so people are not getting the resources that we need because there's not enough, you know, funding that's going to community organizations to have the boots on the ground that's needed to get information and resources to our communities. And that's what I was listening for. That's when I was most excited was, was when people My name's Vicky. I use she, her pronouns, and I am a first-generation Chinese-American. It's really enraging to see all of these electeds come up here, say that they stand with our communities and that they're against anti-Asian hate when they have been the ones who contribute every day to the systemic starvation and under-resourcing of our communities. To see them pull up Asian people who are pro-police as if that represents our community infuriates me because Peter Ku and William Lexham do not speak for me. I do not sit, like support the NYPD Anti-Asian Hate Crimes Task Force. I think that the $11 billion that we spend on the police should be going... Into- These aren't all the voices we heard from, but it seemed clear that some of the folks weren't happy about the outcome of some of the speeches. It felt like, to them, the politicians on stage were spewing hollow words than actually talking about tangible actions needed to support Asian American communities in New York City. Yeah, and there was a point where Comptroller Scott Stringer got on stage, and it wasn't that what he was saying was necessarily hollow per se, but he said this. We will not accept hatred in New York City. Stop Asian hate. This is the message we have to get out, not just in New York City, but all over this country. Stop Asian hate. Stop it now. Stop the haters. Which honestly kind of made me cringe. I don't know. What did you think so? Yeah, was he like quoting Taylor Swift? And the haters gonna hate, hate. 
that's what it made me think i was like oh my god this is really cringy yeah part of me feels like that some of these politicians don't actually know what to do about these incidents right they just finally realize it's worth speaking out against and that's why they're on stage i would say also this event got like lots of coverage so i'm sure it was great for them to be on that platform and i'm glad that we are finally able to get this issue on national media but for today's episode we want to take the time to really ask ourselves what does the asian american community need right now to find an answer to that question we first approached something that seems pretty simple on the outset but turned out to be really complicated defining anti-asian racism then we try to find out if there are any solutions proposed by the asian american community through that search we talked to dr roslyn chow from the Georgia State University about the lineage of anti-Asian hate and abolitionist Jason Wu to think about the alternatives to incarceration. I also want to acknowledge that this is clearly a worldwide issue. So, we're sending all our thoughts to the communities around the world that are also dealing with anti-Asian hate incidents. Now for a quick break to hear from With Chinese Characteristics podcast. The rise of pandemic-related anti-Asian hate comes from a rise in anti-Chinese sentiment and the perpetual foreigner syndrome. Hosts Cherry and Natalie open you to the world of Chinese and Chinese diasporic politics, tackling issues like the pigtail ordinance, the peasant rebellions, and the violence against Chinese doctors. And they got really great banter. Here's them now. Hello, everyone. This is Natalie. This is Cherry. And together we host with Chinese characteristics, a podcast about the politics, the culture, and the history of China, both today and in the past. Normally, we try to have some fun with Chinese and Asian American topics alike, but our newest episode is rather heavy, in which we discuss the Los Angeles Chinese Massacre, a historical event we found very relevant and worth discussing today. Visit our website at withchinesecharacteristics.com. Find us anywhere you get your podcast. See you next Sunday. So before the break, we took you through just one rally in New York City that addressed anti-Asian hate incidents. But let's just take a step back and talk about why there was such an intense increase of anti-Asian hate recently. All of us know 2020 was a horrible year, mostly attributed, you know, to the pandemic. And having a racist president and administration didn't make it any better. In fact, it only fueled the anti-Asian sentiment that already existed in the United States. Yeah, I mean, this past year has definitely exacerbated these tensions that have existed for such a long time. Because when you go a little deeper, you'll realize that actually it's not just these surface-level comments about Asians that create anti-Asian violence. Rather, it stems from a singular thing that is so embedded and ingrained in the United States that a lot of us fail to even consider it as the reason why this is happening. White supremacy. That's Dr. Rosalind Chow, one of our guests today. Dr. Rosalind Chow, I'm a professor of sociology at Georgia State University. My pronouns are she/her/hers. I'm a second-generation Asian American, specifically Taiwanese American. Raised in the South, so I think certainly that southern part of my identity has shaped me,、uh, and also growing up queer in the South. I talked to Dr. Chow to better understand how white supremacy serves as a catalyst for anti-Asian racism. Anti-Asian racism is really under、uh, an umbrella of systemic racism that is very specific to the United States. Since the first Asian bodies arrived here. 
there has been inequality in and treatment as a second-class citizen or not even as human beings. And with that, it was embedded in the law itself. Asians have been migrating to the United States since the late 19th century. And xenophobia against non-whites, and in this instance, Asian folks, has obviously resulted in so many atrocities over time. I mean, it all starts with the little things, like spreading xenophobic propaganda about the lack of cleanliness of Chinese people in San Francisco, or introducing the idea of yellow peril to the American people. To outright excluding Chinese and then all Asian people from immigrating to the United States. Yes, and also incarcerating Japanese Americans for mere suspicion that the United States government had about them. And don't forget the American colonization and pillaging of Asian and Pacific lands that were not their own, Mm -hmm. which resulted in like hundreds and thousands of Asians relocating to the U.S., a place that's often coined as a land of the free, home of the brave, but also where POC immigrants have been left unprotected, unsupported, and impoverished for so many years. Go back to episode one, part two, if you need a refresh on all that. And our history has told us that Asians are only wanted here when it comes to using them for either profit or as a tool to pit Asians against other people of color. Hence, the creation of the model minority myth. Real quick for some of y'all who might have heard of this phrase but never really put it into words, the model minority myth basically states that Asian Americans are the golden standard of immigrants that are migrated to the United States due to their relatively good economic standing in comparison to other POC. Right, but it's a myth because it doesn't consider that Asian immigrants are one, not all quote-unquote successful, and two, they often don't face the same systematic restrictions set by white supremacy as Black people, such as you know anti-Black property practices. We are used as an example for other groups of color that we're held up on a somewhat of a pedestal, but to shame other people of color. The term was actually coined by a white sociologist in the 60s, and you can see that whiteness is left out of the racial framing. This makes it harder for us to ask questions like, since Asians are on this like supposed pedestal, who put them there? Who is this competition appealing to? When we feed into the model minority myth, we use white privilege and power to frame our existence through a few simple stereotypes. These are stereotypes that can change at the whim of whatever is convenient for whiteness. Today, it's rearing its head the anti-Asian rhetoric surrounding the coronavirus. Violence against Asian Americans and Asians in the United States has always existed, but I think in the era of having social media and uh, just how accessible it is to everyone, we see and can hear the stories about the overt violence that's happening against Asians. People of other races in the United States that aren't Asian, we're as a group so diverse and encompassed so many different ethnicities and nations, but there's no identification that these are very different groups and it's heterogeneous. So uh, we're treated as one lump group under an umbrella and with that come stereotypes. When you have systemic racism and white supremacy, it alienates people from each other and from themselves in four distinct ways, Dr. Chow says. So white supremacy then first creates alienated relationships with people of color and whites. And it's because of the law that for 84% of our history has really benefited whites, whether they wanted it or not, whether they realized it or not. Secondly, it alienates groups of color from each other. It fractures people of color that have very similar interests in fighting racial oppression. Thirdly, within 
this quote unquote racial group where there's not at the moment some of the organization of all Asian ethnicities in the United States working together to fight racial oppression because they're different nations, they're different ethnicities, there's different histories and backgrounds and political struggles. So this group is fractured. And lastly, is that it alienates an individual from themselves where we buy into the stereotypes. White supremacy affects whites as well to be disconnected in a lot of ways from all these people of color. So really everybody loses. It might have the word supremacy for a group, but honestly, the system of white supremacy really tears people of color away from each other, from whites and from themselves. That's a really interesting point. And Dr. Chow articulates it really well. Yeah, and she also talks about the consequences of not acknowledging anti-Asian violence. Any kind of form of violence against a group, it just further continues to dehumanize and discount that particular group. And so the feeling of calling the virus Kung Flu and the China virus and creating this blame that you know, your life is affected because these people did this. I mean, which is a complete fabrication, a lie. What scares me so much is the power of humans to forget humanity. What atrocities or violence or threats could happen if we keep up this type of rhetoric. Dr. Chow loves us with a lot of good thoughts. But I want to bring the conversation back to the topical issue of anti-Asian violence and kind of interrogate the current solutions that's been put in place since it's finally gained momentum in the mainstream news. And we wanted to bring someone on to discuss what we really need in this moment, because this problem goes way beyond any short-term solutions. And like Dr. Chow suggested, it has its roots in an uglier history. And also to interrogate the meanings of short-term solutions like crime and punishment. We talked to abolitionist Jason Wu. We'll hear from him after this quick break. We are already halfway through our first season of At The Moment, and we are overjoyed with the amount of support we've gotten from y'all. If there are any stories you'd like to pitch to us for this current season or in the future, email me at sylvia at az.media. That's sylvia with an Y at azi.media. Thank y'all for listening. Before the break, we discuss white supremacy's roots in anti-Asian violence. Now, we want to move on to how to confront this violence and also touch on abolition and its place in society today. And to dive into this discussion, we talk to Jason Wu. My name is Jason Wu. I'm an attorney here in New York City doing legal services work, mostly in the context of housing, fighting gentrification and displacement. I'm also active in our union, the Association of Legal Aid Attorneys, which is part of UAW Local 2325. And I also do some community organizing with an organization called Good Pimney, Empowering Queer and Trans Asian Pacific Islanders. And over the course of this pandemic, I started doing more writing I was trying to both document social movements that were happening but, and also using uh, media as an advocacy tool to highlight things that I felt like were being overlooked or were lacking important context and nuance. Some of that writing you know, has dealt with issues of policing and thinking about anti-Asian violence and also cross-racial solidarity. Jason really put the whole issue of relying 
on the system to solve a systemic issue into words. He refers to the militarization in Asia and the Pacific Islands and urges us to take histories of colonization into our own understanding of anti-Asian hate as a systemic problem. The historical and the kind of global perspectives around some of this, it shifts our analysis away from individual discrimination into individualized interpersonal harm and violence. And so we can see that these things are produced over time, that they're reinforced, that it exists as an ideology, that it's that there's a cultural underpinning, that there's a state violence piece to it, right? That it's not just about individual people doing bad things, but that this is something that's also sanctioned oftentimes by the state and by state actors. Taking that individual to a more um, historical and global perspective, a more systemic analysis helps us to also think, think about what are the solutions to addressing these issues. Because if the violence that we're talking about and that we're seeing is systemic, then we also have to address it systemically. Yeah, and I think what you're saying is reminding me of a lot of moments in history from, you know, boycotting Japanese and Chinese goods because they think it's competitive and then which led to Vincent Chin's death. And then also more recently, like there has been a lot of, I don't know if it's Chinese or East Asian scientists who have been accused of being spies for China when they have either been born here or have been working here not associated to the government at all. And all these are symptoms of this anti-Asian violence that's much more systemic than individually bad actors. Right now, you know, New York City's initial response to anti-Asian hate was to create the NYPD Hate Crime Task Force. And recently, since all the social media frenzy around these devastating cases, a lot of city government's initial response or continued response is using Asian-American hate crimes as an evidence to why we shouldn't abolish or defund the police or just like a way for um, them to advocate for more funding towards police efforts. So... I would love if you can go into a little bit about what carceral logic is and how we're kind of playing into that or how could we be playing into that right now? It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for me, just as it is for people who are saying they want more policing and prosecution. I'm hurting too, you know, it like seeing Asian elders being brutalized and killed. Like, I want to acknowledge that. But I also think like some of this fundamentally is it's about how we view the world, how we understand the problem, and is the thing that we're saying is the solution actually the solution? The legacy and struggle against state violence and anti-Black racism goes back generations, right? I think that last year, there was so much possibility around saying enough is enough. And I think abolition, to some extent, started mainstreaming. And then now we're entering into this moment of the police are what keep us safe. The police is community safety. When we literally just came out of an awakening around the fact that police violence is violence, that state violence is violence, that so much of the policing apparatus and prison industrial complex is itself violence, that the violence that we talk about when we're talking about police and prisons is not aberrational or exceptional, but that these are normalized systems and practices 
when we when we're talking about abolishing the police, we mean it, right? That it's not just about calling for some more reforms, but it's really about a, a new way of imagining our society that goes beyond what we've done in the past, which has brought us to this moment of mass incarceration. I think that the commitment to Black Lives Matter and cross-racial solidarity and a reimagining and building of a new society, it's gonna take a lot of work. It's a long-term struggle. And I think that, you know, it's easy to fall back to what we're used to, which is a conception of, of safety and accountability and justice that is synonymous with policing. When I think we have to move beyond that and we have to understand that it's not policing or nothing or prisons or nothing. That there are other ways that we can think about public safety, um, justice and accountability. The institutions that currently exist are clearly incapable of providing our communities of color with real safety and protection. Jason realizes that, yes, moving away from these systems that we've relied on for the majority of our history aren't going to go away easily, but we also need to take an active role in both straying away from these systems and also cultivating new ones. Jason points to one example of how, as Asian Americans, we can inform ourselves and protect our own communities. I think that the Defund the Police campaign is one iteration of this kind of analysis or possibility. You know, defunding the police is not just about taking away an existing resource, but it's about a reallocation and reprioritization of community needs and community safety. There's nothing about policing that is preventative of harm and violence in our communities. And so I think so much of policing and the desire for increased criminal penalties around hate crimes prosecution is rooted in an understanding of justice based on punishment. It's really hard when there's injustice in your community and this kind of visceral reaction takes over you. You feel like you have to do something about it. I mean, we heard it earlier in the episode from some of the rally speakers, literally calling for more policing and patrolling, saying that those that are caught will suffer the consequences. It can be so difficult to resist that knee-jerk reaction that's entrenched in the Asian American community to rely on law enforcement for our own safety and protection, especially when it comes to physical harm. How do we broaden the ways we think about public safety and what do we categorize as violence in our communities? We have to rethink what what public safety looks like, what our community needs. And so if we have to broaden our understanding of what violence is, because poverty is violence. Children being hungry is, is violence, right? Homelessness is violence. Our seniors who are facing food insecurity, that's also violence. And so violence is more than just kind of the headlines that get picked up in the news, which are more sensationalized and reactionary. And a lot of the defund the police um, analysis is around this invest-divest framework. So it's not just taking away, but it's about all the things that make a community safe, that go beyond our traditional conception of police being the only thing that can be safety. In order to dismantle existing systems, we need to reframe all these issues affecting marginalized communities as issues of public safety and violence. We're so accustomed to thinking of crime as the only thing that needs justice. But what about societal justice? Does alleviating suffering not count as justice? When Jason talks about 
thinking beyond traditional conceptions of police as the only source of safety, I couldn't help but think of Angelo Quinto. He was a 30-year-old Filipino man who was experiencing a mental health episode. His sister called the police because she didn't know what else to do. And to subdue him, a police officer kneeled on his neck for nearly five minutes, and he fell unconscious. He was pronounced dead three days later. We don't typically think of police violence against Asians as anti-Asian hate, but it definitely is. Not only did the police kneel on his neck, but his family thought the right thing to do in the situation was obviously to call the police for help. They truly believed that law enforcement could be relied on for dealing with mental health issues. And seven days later, police killed Chinese-American 19-year-old Christian Hall. He was experiencing mental health issues and the police shot him seven times with his hands in the air. Mental health is already such a stigmatized and taboo subject within Asian American communities. On one hand, we're already dealing with such limited resources from mental health needs. And when we do reach out for help, we then are confronted with police violence. And it makes me really think about why do we find police as a place of safety? And Jason goes a little bit deeper into that. If the only way that we think about safety is giving money to the police, and we don't think about giving money to all of the other social service organizations and community-based organizations that are providing all of this other life-sustaining survival work, then, then what are we really doing? You talk about a lot of systemic things that are very important, but for some people that may say, oh, I can't wait anymore. I need some, you know, immediate solutions. What are some band-aid solutions that don't reinforce carceral systems? There's a really amazing writer who I, I really like. Her name is Derricka Purnell. And she wrote a piece about how she became an abolitionist. And one of the things that she says is that when people dismiss abolitionists for not caring about victims or safety, they tend to forget that we are those victims, those survivors of violence. I really appreciate that point because a lot of the, the abolitionist organizing and people who do this work are people who come from communities that experience a lot of violence, that experience a lot of quote-unquote crime. A lot of the work around transformative justice comes out of abolition. It comes out of survivor-based work. Sometimes what I see is that you know, abolition is something that's intellectual or it's theoretical. And this is something that, you know, people who are privileged can think about. I want to underscore that I think so much of the, the work around abolition and reimagining what's possible in the organizing comes from people who are directly impacted. Conversations about abolition can often feel like you need to be of a certain privilege to have these conversations, when in reality, these ideas about abolition and dismantling white supremacist systems came out of the very communities that were facing this violence. We should remember that abolitionists aren't just theorizing for fun. They're seriously thinking through how to be liberated. You know, abolition is not to say we, we're going to exist in a utopia where harm doesn't exist anymore. But I think it is about a vision and um, developing practices that grapple with these issues and to heal, right? And so it's not just about punishment, but it's about how do we create a society where we're able to heal? And a lot of the data around who's incarcerated, who's in prisons, there's very high rates of mental health issues. 
There's a high rate of people who've experienced domestic violence and violence in their communities, um, gun violence and so forth. And so a lot of the people who are harming other people have experienced harm. A lot of people who are creating trauma in our communities have also experienced trauma. And so how do we get beyond a system that further entrenches that harm, right? That further disperses harm, that further reinforces harm every step of the way within the system and society that we're in. Jason mentioned a ton of organizations in New York City that offer relief and support for the Asian community. He mentioned CAV, the Committee Against Anti-Asian Violence, which is an organization that works to undo systemic and institutional racism through their community-based projects that are all rooted in uplifting marginalized folks. He also mentioned DRUM, or Desi Rising Up movement, which serves South Asian communities in New York City. Both CAV and DRUM work in coalition with other Black and Brown groups that are fighting police violence. And there's also the CICF, the Coalition for Asian American Families and Children, which is an advocacy organization that brings together community-based organizations, youth, and community allies to fight for equity for Asian Pacific Americans. And make on NYC which primarily serves Southeast Asian refugees in Bronx by providing a variety of services for the communities. And actually at the rally, the nonprofit Asian American Federation ended the rally by calling for more mental health services as a response to anti-Asian hate incidents. But honestly, supporting nonprofit organizations that help these communities of color is just a minimum of what needs to be done to fully achieve liberation from systemic racism. We need to fight for funding. So some of that is Asian American specific, but also I think we can connect those struggles to larger campaigns around taxing the rich. If we need that revenue to provide that city and state funding or federal funding for you know programs and services and community-based organizations, one way to do that is taxing the rich. Another way, as we talked about earlier, is defunding the police, which is about reallocation of funding. There's a state bill for data disaggregation, So I think the reporting and data collection is also important, but I also think we have to be really careful about what we're using that for. We'll be back after this quick break. Hey there, John Ray here, co-host of At The Moment. At AZ Media, we strive to uplift our communities and report on the most important issues. To support our work, subscribe to our pod wherever you listen, and please consider donating to our coffee at coffee.com slash azmedia. That's K-O hyphen F-I dot A-Z-I media. Our coffee page will be linked in the show notes as well. Thank y'all for listening. So we had two really wonderful guests come and talk. We had Rosalind Chow, who kind of framed anti-Asian hate incidents around white supremacy and thinking about the roots of of where anti-Asian violence really comes from. And then we had Jason, who talked about institutions and why we need to abolish the carceral system. And Sylvia, I remember our conversation with Jason. There was this one specific moment. Sylvia, you said something that was really poignant about remembering that Noel Quintana was actively in transit when that unfortunate incident happened. What did you say? Oh, yeah. So Noel was actually attacked when he was on his way Mm -hmm. back home from work. And I'm just thinking about who are those people in the city right now that have to commute to work every day? I think it's really tied to, you know, the jobs they have. And a lot of them are frontline workers where, you know, low-income frontline workers doing the kind of work in immigrant communities, mm-hmm. right? This reminds us that the issue of anti-Asian violence 
incidents is not just about these individual incidents, but it lives within this whole ecosystem of these cities that are currently undergoing a pandemic. And within the pandemic, we see such high unemployment rates, you know, mental health crises. And all these things can really help us understand why maybe we see more tension in these cities, but also why justice can't end with just crime and punishment, because Mm -hmm. there's also the societal injustice. Yeah, it's almost like an iceberg. Yeah, and that's a really great analogy, John Ray. And I feel like a reason why we spent some time during our episode digging at the root of anti-Asian racism is to show that, you know, the anger we're feeling right now towards these elders being attacked is more than just these elders being attacked. It's connected to this history of Asian American bodies being seen as disposable and then Asian American issues being seen as invisible. Right. A lot of Asian Americans are really activated in this moment. Would you say that they're hyper-focusing on these specific incidents? I feel like it's important to see like the bigger picture, right? Because I think when we see that, we realize it's important to call beyond these specific incidents. We should look at how we can support Asian marginalized communities beyond the pandemic and making sure that they receive the social services they need. And also, you know, focus on community organizers that are really looking to abolish the police system and thinking about alternative ways of finding safety for all communities. And all of this turns out was said much more eloquently by somebody else that we all know, Angela Davis. She says, what we're calling for is a process of decriminalization, not recognizing that threats to safety, threats to security come not primarily from what is defined as crime, but rather from the failure of institutions in our country to address issues of health, issues of violence, education, etc. So abolition is really about rethinking the kind of future we want, the social future, the economic future, the political future. It's about revolution, I would argue. And that's a wrap. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at az.media. If you'd like to be in the loop of what's happening with At The Moment in AZ Media, please sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter. You'll get a quick breakdown of the episode of the week, other social activism materials we're reading, exclusive company updates, and more. Visit our website at azi.media to subscribe, and we'll see you there. This episode was produced by Cynthia Liu, Blake Liu Merwin, and Stacey Wong. Also edited by Stacey Wong. Story research and reporting by Sylvia Pong, John Ray Serapio, Elena Ponick, Cynthia Liu, Blake Liu Merwin, and again, Stacey Wong. Our music is by Saturo Ono, cover art by Susu Schwaber. Special thanks to Tiffany Wong, Nevada Tenetti, Alice Liu, and Sabine Shawani. Join us next time to talk about queer Asian America. And I'm your host, Sylvia Pong. I'm John Ray Serapio. Thank you for listening. <laughs>